provide for them all. But he, Siddhartha, was not a source of joy for himself. He found no delight in himself. Walking the rosy paths of the fig tree garden, sitting in the bluish shade of the grove of contemplation, washing his limbs daily in the bath of repentance, sacrificing in the dim shade of the mango forest, his gestures of perfect decency, everyone's love and joy, he still lacked all joy in his heart. Dreams and restless thoughts came into his mind, flowing from the water of the river, sparkling from the stars of the night, melting from the beams of the sun, dreams came to him, and a restlessness of the soul, fuming from the sacrifices, breathing forth from the verses of the Rigveda, being infused into him drop by drop from the teachings of the old Brahmans. Siddhartha had started to nurse discontent in himself. He had started to feel that the love of his father and the love of his mother and also the love of his friend Govinda would not bring him joy forever and ever, would not nurse him, feed him, satisfy him. He had started to suspect that his venerable father and his other teachers, that the wise Brahmins had already revealed to him, and the most and best of the wisdom, that they had already filled his expecting vessel with their richness, and the vessel was not full, the spirit was not content, the soul was not calm, the heart was not satisfied. The ablutions were good, but they were water. They did not wash off sins. They did not heal the spirit's thirst. They did not relieve the fear in his heart. The sacrifices and the invocation of the gods were excellent, but was that all? Did the sacrifices give a happy fortune? And what about the gods? Was it really Prajapati who created the world? Was it not the Atman? He, the only one, the singular one. Were the gods not creation, created like me and you, subject to time, mortal? Was it therefore good? Was it right? Was it meaningful and the highest occupation to make offerings to the gods? For whom else were the offerings to be made? Who else was to be worshipped but him, the only one, the Atman? And where was Atman to be found? Where did he reside? Where did his eternal heart beat? Where else but in one's own self, in its innermost part, in its indestructible part, which everyone had in himself? But where, where was this self, this innermost part, this ultimate part? It was not flesh and bone. It was neither thought nor consciousness. Thus the wisest one taught. So, where? Where was it? To reach this place, the self, myself, the Atman, was there another way which was worthwhile looking for? Alas! And nobody showed this way. Nobody knew it. Not the father, and not the teachers and wise men, not the holy sacrificial songs. They knew everything, the Brahmins and their holy books. They knew everything. They had taken care of everything, and of more than everything. The creation of the world, the origin of speech, of food, of inhaling, of exhaling, the arrangement of the senses, the acts of the God, they knew infinitely much. But was it valuable to know all this? 
not knowing that one and only thing, the most important thing, the solely important thing. Surely many verses of the holy books, particularly in the Upanishads of Samaved, spoke of this innermost and ultimate thing. Wonderful verses. Your soul is the whole world, was written there, and it was written that man in his sleep, in his deep sleep, would meet with his innermost part and would reside in the Atman. Marvellous wisdom was in these verses. All knowledge of the wisest ones had been collected here in magic words, pure as honey collected by bees. Known not to be looked down upon was the tremendous amount of enlightenment which lay here collected and preserved by innumerable generations of wise Brahmins. But where were the Brahmins? Where the pre